So I am doing a Bible reading plan through the Bible, and I recently finished the book of Exodus, which means that now I'm in the book of Leviticus. Anybody there with me? Okay, just keep pressing through. You will get through. I, if, there, if for no other reason, there are reasons, lots of reasons why Leviticus is in the Bible. One of the reasons is to know and to be thankful that we don't have to do all of the things that they had to do in the, the book of Leviticus. But back to Exodus. Exodus, I, I find such a, an inspirational story because it, it ends so triumphantly. I mean, it ends with the exit, the exodus of the people, the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt. God rescues them dramatically, brings them out, sets them on a path to the promised land. So it ends triumphantly. The opening, though, of the book is very dark. In the, at the opening of the book of Exodus, they are in slavery, deep into slavery. And it, it says, it, it uses a lot of phrases to describe that and talks about that, that the people were bitter with the hardness of their service. And so into that, God calls Moses and he says, Moses, I want you to go to my people and I want you to tell them some good news. I want you to tell them that I am aware of their slavery. And, and the language is so beautiful because he says, tell them God has heard you. God knows. He remembers. And he's going to rescue you. And for the first time in generations and even hundreds of years, for the first time, these people have hope. Because they have literally been being born into slavery for generation after generation after generation. So they're like, finally, it's coming to an end. And then the unexpected happens. Life actually gets harder for them. Because Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, nah. And you must have too much time on your hands that you're even thinking about getting free. So I'm going to make your life harder. I'm going to require the same number of bricks to be made, but I'm not giving you any supplies. You need to go find your own straw, make your bricks, and, and keep producing at the same level. And so the people are going like, what in the world? And, and so God sends Moses back to his people. To remind them, I've heard you, I know. And, and the second time Moses goes, it says they, they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. And who can blame them? Maybe, maybe you have experienced something like this, where you have called on God for help in a situation in your life, but things did not turn out as expected as you hoped. Maybe you prayed for a medical healing or you asked God for a financial provision for something unexpected that came up and you were devastated. And you're like, I don't know how we're going to handle this. Or you, you prayed for a reconciliation in a relationship that was broken and you're praying for these things. And instead of getting better, things get worse. And, and maybe you're here this morning and you're in a season of disillusionment. I mean, maybe you're new to faith and you're trying to find some hope. Or maybe you've been calling on God for a long time and you've been trusting him and he just is not coming through the way you expect. And when we come to that point in life, we have a choice. We're either going to trust 
in what we, what we know God's word says about God, that he's good, he's powerful, he's doing things for a purpose. We're either going to trust or we may end up with a broken spirit. This morning, we're going to look at a pivotal scene in the life of Jesus. When people turn on him because he does not fulfill the expectations they had for him. And there's a warning in this scene for us because we have the same tendency to have expectations of God that he doesn't always fulfill. And we have to determine how we're going to respond when he does that. So if you would turn to the book of Matthew, Matthew 21, that's where we're going to be this morning. One of those Bibles that Ken pointed you to, or if you have it on your phone, that's fine too. Um, We are looking at several key events in the life of Jesus. And so two weeks ago, we looked at the temptation of Jesus, a test that Jesus went through that he had to pass if he was going to be able to fulfill the purpose that he came for. And then last week, we looked at the purpose he came for. We looked at the fact that Jesus came to be a friend of sinners. He came to be a doctor to those who are sick in their soul from sin. And so today we're going to look at what happens when the expectations clash between what God intended for Jesus to do and and what the people were expecting. So we're starting in verse 1 of Matthew 21. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, when they, that's uh, Jesus and his disciples, drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. Of Galilee. So this scene is what we sometimes refer to in church as Palm Sunday, the the triumphal entry. And it appears at first glance, as we just read through this passage, that something positive is going on here. I mean, clearly, Jesus has a really strong following. I mean, there are a lot of people who love him, are committed to him, and they're, they're cheering for him. I mean, they are cheering for him to be their, their king. But in just a few days and just a few pages later, we're going to see this same crowd turn on him as Jesus is on trial. Hold your finger in Matthew 21, but flip over to Matthew 27. Just a few pages, few chapters, few days Later, Jesus is on trial, 
And starting in Matthew 27, verse 20, it says, Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. I think it's no mistake that Matthew uses the same word of of crowds. He talks about the crowds here shouting, let him be crucified. And back in chapter 21 and verse 9, he says, the crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. So one day they're shouting Hosanna and praise, and the next day they're asking for him to be crucified. I I remember as a kid growing up in church, at Christmas and Easter, we would do cantatas. And I have no idea what the word cantata means, but what it is is like a musical setting of these Bible stories. And so I remember distinctly as a little kid watching the choir stand on, you know, doing this Easter cantata, and they sang... Hosanna, that kind of like we sang earlier here today, just a really upbeat, praising song. And they sang that. And then several songs later, they were saying, let him be crucified. And they were chanting it. And it was like growing in intensity to the point where they were yelling it. I remember even as a kid being struck by the fact these are the same people saying these two very, very different things. And I think this may be one of the greatest examples, if not the greatest example in history, of the fickleness of human beings and how we can one minute be cheering for someone and the next minute be jeering for the same person. We, we have some experience with this in, in football games, right? At, at, at the beginning of a football game, team runs out onto the field and everybody's cheering and yelling. They may, may be chanting the name of somebody who's like, you know, maybe it's the quarterback or this is like the, the best, you know, the player that we're hoping is going to win the game for. So they're, they're chanting and, and cheering. And then fast forward several quarters and the game isn't going so well. And maybe, you know, Golden Child is not performing the way everybody would want them to. And then they're shouting other things that we won't repeat here, especially if you're an Eagles fan. So you're, you know, the same crowd is cheering two different things. Why? What, what's the difference? What makes the change? Because expectations were not fulfilled. Because at the beginning of the game, they're thinking, this, we have this great expectation. You're going to win this for us. You're going to put some... Points up on the board, and then when that doesn't happen, then the crowd turns on him. That's what happened for Jesus. People had an expectation of him riding into Jerusalem that they see. People were excited for Jesus to be riding into Jerusalem that way, that that day, because what they saw when they saw Jesus riding in is they saw here's a conquering king who is coming to free us from the oppression that we're under. We, if you were here last week, we talked about the, the tax oppression that people were under and the fact that there was a flat tax in that day of somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 40 percent, maybe even more. And so it doesn't matter how impoverished you were, you were forking over a significant chunk, close to half of what you make to an oppressive government so that they could go oppress more people. 
And so that's the financial aspect of it. But beyond that, you have a, a government set up where these, these people had no freedom. They had no voice. They had no ability to be able to speak into the future of their country or their own personal futures. They were just at the mercy of this powerful political system called Rome that was ruling the whole earth at that time. What are you going to do against them? So they had this dream and this vision and this expectation of someone to come in and set them free. And it was well-founded. They, they were thinking about prophecy. They were thinking about a prophecy that Matthew quotes here in verse 5. They, they knew these words from Zechariah. Say to the daughter of Zion or Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So they knew that this prophecy is all about a, a ruler coming to set them free. It's about a Messiah. They had an expectation of what this Messiah was going to be like, someone to come and set them free like Moses had set his people free millennia before. So they knew that the prophecy talked about a donkey, that this king would come mounted on a donkey. But they were not thinking about what a donkey actually meant or symbolized. So if a, if a king came in, if a ruler came into town, into a capital city, no less, on a, on a horse, then they knew what that meant. They knew what that symbolizes. If a king rode into his capital city on a horse, it probably meant that he just got done conquering some other enemy and he's coming in to celebrate if he goes into somebody else's capital city on a horse, it means he's coming there for war. And so horses, he's coming on a horse because horses are awesome. I mean, some of you may, may raise horses and horses are just, you know, they're strong, they're powerful, they're stately. I mean, you see somebody riding a horse and it just inspires respect and awe. Jesus comes riding on a donkey. Donkeys inspire um, um, I don't, I, what do donkeys inspire? Donkeys inspire like, um, yeah, blah, I, I don't know. I mean, donkeys are just, I mean, they, they work, they're, they're respectable animals, I'm sure. I mean, they, they do their work and stuff, but they're just kind of, they're honestly now, I mean, they're just kind of goofy looking. I mean, next to a horse, it's like, what is a donkey? And so in the day of Jesus, if a king rode a donkey into town, Sometimes a king would ride a donkey into a neighboring city-state. And think in Jesus' day, there's all these city-states that are scattered around. And they are fortressed. They, I mean, they have walls around them because everybody's trying to protect themselves. They're trying to protect their people. They're trying to protect their property. And so if, somebody, if a king rides up to a neighboring city-state on a donkey, it communicated, I'm coming in peace. I'm coming to connect with you in reconciliation. I'm not coming with a sword to try to conquer you. I'm coming in peace. And so the people were not thinking about the significance of Jesus coming on a donkey. And, and this really captures the collision that we have between the people's expectations and what God was doing here. And the warning for us is, is let's not let our preference eclipse God's purpose. Don't let your preference eclipse God's purpose. See, the, the people's preference 
was that a military leader was going to come in and conquer their human enemies. God's purpose was that his man was going to come in to conquer spiritual enemies by sacrifice, not by power, not trying to overtake by power, but by submission in sacrifice. And when our expectations collide with God's purposes, when our preferences collide with God's purpose, we have a choice to make. We can yield to God's purpose and do it his way, or we can dig our heels in and we can try to insist that we get our way. And when we stand toe to toe with God, I think it's pretty clear how that's going to turn out in the end. And so we do well to submit ourselves, but sometimes it's, a, it's our nature to resist. And I think this is especially hard in a culture that we live in where we're used to the customer being right. And a culture of, of entitlement where we're used to being able to speak up and fight for what it is that we think we should have. We're, we're used to using our money, our influence, whatever power we we may have we're used to using that to lobby for our way and we're not used to giving up our our way and so this becomes really challenging when god's ways are not what we're wanting to have happen i think something that's very sobering about this scene is looking at these crowds who are saying good things I mean, they're saying the right things. They're, they're talking words of worship. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. I mean, they're saying the right words, but their purpose is completely different. And sometimes that is true for us. Their, their purpose is completely different from what God had in mind. And sometimes we can vocalize and verbalize the right words, but our hearts are really in a very different place from God. This scene actually is more about nationalism than it is about worship. So when they're waving palm branches, for them, palm branches were symbolic of their nationalism and their patriotism. So for us, you know, a bald eagle, for Canadians, a maple leaf, I mean, it's kind of, that's the picture with these palm branches. They had them on their coins. And so they're waving these things and they're thinking nationalism, we're getting our nation back and we need to be really careful about mixing our faith and our nationalism and i'm, I'm going to sit down for a minute because I'm, I, want, I want us just to talk okay so i'm going to sit down because i'm going where i'm wading in where angels fear to tread here but i, I want to talk about nationalism and faith because we're in a situation right now we're in a year where there's a lot of talk about politics and a lot of times with that talk about politics, we, we marry talk about faith. And so what happens is sometimes our nationalism overshadows our, our faith in the process of those conversations. And so I want to challenge us with something as, as we think. And so I'm going to just get nitty gritty here for, for a moment. And I'm going to talk about the two major parties that we have in our country. And I'm going to start with Democrats because they come first in the alphabet. So if you're a Democrat, it is very 
possible. There are many Christ-following Democrats who look at Republicans and say, I cannot imagine how you could be part of that party knowing this and this and this about your party, about your platform. I, I don't see how you can call yourself a Christ follower and still be uh, a Republican. And we can certainly flip that around. And we can say, if you're a Republican, that you look at the Democratic platform or things that are going on in the Democratic Party, you say, I, I don't see how you can put that together. And if that's the case for you, if you resonate with what I just said, it's probably because you spend all of your time listening to your platform and your people and your party. Because if you spent enough time to listen to someone who's in a different camp, you would discover that there are different ways of looking at these things. And there are people in both camps who are working on marrying their faith because that's an important part of winning votes and, and that kind of thing. But And sincerely, there are people who are saying, I want to line up what I'm pursuing uh, politically with Scripture. Now, there's lots of people in both camps who don't care about what the Bible says or what Jesus said. So there's lots of that, too. But there are people in both parties and every other party that I didn't mention who really care about their faith and who also care about their politics. And so here's what I want to encourage you in this very polarized year to, to do before the Lord. And that is to say... We need to keep straight what our priority is, that our priority is not to be a Republican or a Democrat. Our priority is to be a Christ follower, first and foremost. And if your social media feeds or your conversations at work are, are more about your political party and you lose the opportunity to influence that person for your faith in Jesus Christ, then you have lost, and we have lost. Because if you are arguing for a political platform, you are arguing for something that is temporary and will go away. Because we're not going to be Republicans or Democrats or any other political party in heaven. We're going to be there because of Christ. And the people who are around you need to know about Christ, not about your political party. So if you're passionate about politics, stay passionate. I'm not dissing that. And keep working for that. We are so blessed to live in a country where we can speak our mind, where we can have influence on our politicians who represent us and write letters and have conversations with them and encourage them to do your, your understanding and your best view of what God is advocating in Scripture. But at the end of the day, we're, we're here to represent Christ. Don't let what you have to say about politics ruin your opportunity to be an influence for them about what they truly need for eternity. Can somebody please say amen? Thank you. All right. Okay. So, see, Jesus knew, Jesus knew coming into Jerusalem that day that the political, military, ethnic mess that they were in would never be cleaned up, would never be solved until the power of sin was broken at its root. And that is what he came to do. That is not what the people 
were wanting. That was not what was uppermost on their mind. And we must not let our preferences eclipse God's purpose. That's enough about politics. This is hardest on the personal level when God does not meet an expectation we have in our personal life. So when we pray for a medical healing and a loved one dies, or when we are devastated by some kind of financial thing that we did not see coming, and God just does not seem to be helping us work through that situation, when we are in chronic pain, it just will not go away. And we call on God and we say, God, I, I believe because scripture tells me that you are powerful and you're loving. Why don't you fix this? We, we call out to him to, to do that. And, and we should. We, we should. And I encourage you to keep doing that. We, be honest with God. Tell God you're frustrated. Okay, you will find that in the book of Psalms. If you read through Psalms, the psalmists are just gut-level, raw, honest with God. So be honest with God about your pain and, and where are you and what is taking so long. As you do that, be aware that Jesus himself did not choose a pain-free life. I mean, Jesus knew exactly what lay ahead of him in Jerusalem. So we were reading in Matthew 21, back in Matthew 16, weeks before this, he's talking with his followers. And it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. Jesus knew exactly what was waiting for him in Jerusalem. And he chose the hard path. His disciples didn't like this. I mean, Peter argued with him and said, Jesus, I mean, Lord, may this never be. This, this should not be, you, you, you shouldn't go there. And, and this shouldn't happen to you. And Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Peter, you don't have in mind the things of God. You have in mind the things of men. Jesus did not choose the easy path because there is no easy solution for sin. I mean, you and I may look back over our life and we may think maybe it's relatively easy. Maybe we feel like we did pretty well. And we look back and we think, yeah, I had kind of that wild time when I was in, in college. But since then, I've been trying really hard and I'm, I'm going to church and I'm doing this and that. And, and maybe we, we, can, we have a tendency as human beings to minimize our, our sin and miss the fact that at the core of who we are, we have a whole lot of preferences and a whole, lot of, a whole lot of things that we want to do that are in direct rebellion against what God wants for us. And the solution for that sin, the forgiveness of that sin, to be able to overpower that sin and live a life of righteousness, is that's, that took a perfect, holy sacrifice of a perfect, holy man to satisfy the requirements of a perfect, holy God. So Jesus chose the hard path, sacrifice and death, but thank God that his death was not the end. God raised him from the dead to affirm that his sacrifice was adequate. It was sufficient to be able to wash over 
our sins. So he rose again three days later. And, and he will return victorious on a horse. Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war so he's going to come back on that horse to make war and the final war against sin and satan the enemy put them away and he will be completely victorious then forever but in order for him to enter the new jerusalem on a horse he had to enter jerusalem on a donkey And in between those two, you and I live, and we have a choice to make. Are we going to insist on our own preferences day by day by day by day? Or are we going to yield ourselves to God's purpose and trust that what he's doing is greater and bigger than what we have in mind? So here's my question for you this morning. How is God calling you right now to submit to his plans? Maybe there's something in your life that's just not going the way you wish it would go, think it should be going. How is God calling you to yield yourself? Jesus modeled yielding and submission that day when he rode a donkey into town. And he said, God, I'm here to do your will. And so the next time you encounter a situation where things are not going according to expectations, here's what I encourage you to do. Pause and just ask yourself, what what is God doing here? Not in an accusational way, God, what are you doing here? But in a submissive way and in a truly seeking way, seeking his wisdom, God, what are you doing here? Because you're doing something that's different than my expectation and your will is always better. I had a situation like this this week. We are, you know, in deep into our process of searching for our next student ministry director uh, or pastor. And we have right now three or four guys who are in the, in the pipeline, if you will, who we're having conversations with. And, and we've been asking them for questionnaires and so forth. And so there's one guy who we've been talking with for a couple of months now. And he's been my favorite because I knew him. I've known him a long time. I knew him from a previous church. I know a lot of his background. He's got just a a great personality. Um, He's doing really well in the ministry that he is in. And so I, I, I confess, I've like thought from the beginning, like I really want him to be the guy. But we've got our search team, and, I, and I've told them you need to ask hard questions, and we need to really do the vetting process here. And this is not not a done deal. And so been having all these conversations and I, but I, you know, I'm thinking down the road because I tend to think, you know, down to the future. And so I'm like thinking, I'm like picturing him here. I'm picturing him with our staff. He's going to get along great with our staff. He's going to do a great job with the kids. Well, Wednesday, I get a call from him. He texts me Wednesday and he's like, can we talk? I'm like, okay, I know what this is. And he told me that he and his wife had been praying and really came to the conviction that they need to be right where they are. And this after a conversation that he and I had a week before that, when I said to him, I said, I said, you really need to know, because I was listening to him talk about the situation he was in. I said, you really need to sort through with the Lord. Does he, did he bring you there to that church to be an agent of change? Or is he releasing you from that? 
And so then he calls me back a week later and says, God hasn't released me. This is where I'm supposed to be. And I'm like, why did I ask that? Why, why did we do that? <laughs> and, and so we had this conversation. He explained it all. I respect his decision. I believe that, that that is the Lord's will for him. But I have to tell you, when we got off the phone call, I was just like, God, what? What just happened? I'm so disappointed. This was not my expectation. And I'm in the middle of working on this message, and I hate it when God takes me through stuff that I have my own experience with this. I'm like, I just want to talk to these people. I don't want to have to go through it myself. But I said, okay, God, you have another plan. You have another purpose. There's someone else you have that's going to be a better fit here. And I'm glad we know that now. let's, Let's know that now before he got here, and we had to figure that out later. So anytime we hit up against those situations where this is not my will, but I'm submitting to God's will. We have the opportunity to affirm the fact, Jesus, you're the king, you're the king here, and I'm your servant, and I'm going to trust you and your ways and what you want to do. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for your plan that was worked out through Christ Jesus. That Thank you for Thank you, Jesus, for your humility that you were willing to come on a donkey, submissive to your Father's will, because there was no other way for us to be cleansed from the sin that that dogs us. And so, Jesus, thank you for being willing to be a perfect sacrifice, for being willing to subject yourself to the cheers of people that you knew were shallow, And then to subject yourself to their jeers when you didn't live up to their expectations and their rejection of you to be condemned, to be crucified. So we thank you, Jesus, for your willingness to do that. Would you make us willing to to walk in your ways as you modeled for us? Would you make us willing in the situations in our life where we have preferences that are so strong and so much a part of us and they're so hard to give up? but they clash against your purposes. Lord, would you help us to yield ourselves to your purpose so we can experience all the good that you have for us. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.